inside Jack told the animals. He blew out the candles, and all the animals hid. Ah, but his wife had a way of making those coins last. We love stories. It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Stories to warm your heart and lift your spirit and give flight to your imagination. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's such a pleasure every time that you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And we always, of course, hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark stories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Now, on today's episode, the world is a big place, and no one knows that better than the heroes in our favorite stories, right? When duty or adventure calls, heroes are often called to leave the comfort of their homes, the arms of their families, to make their way in the world and discover what else is out there. Now, sometimes our favorite heroes find buried treasure or find noble and important battles to fight. Other times they discover that what they truly sought could be found at home all along. And today's stories feature protagonists that leave their homes to find things Things that they might not have expected. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, it's great to have you with me. Great to be here. Uh, you know, we're going to hear a Donald Davis story. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, so in classic Donald Davis fashion, this is going to be a Jack tale. <laughs> and in this, in this Jack tale, Jack sets out into the world to seek his fortune, even though he's not quite sure what that means. But along the way, he's going to meet a lot of troubled animals. And so he's going to invite them to come with him, and our little merry band of creatures are off to seek their fortunes. <laughs> Donald Davis telling a jack tale. You know, a lot of people uh, think of Donald Davis and think about the personal and family stories that he tells, the stories about growing up in Appalachia and the mountains of the Carolinas. But uh, uh, Donald Davis, as, as you mentioned, is is fond of jack tales as well and, in fact, began his career as a storyteller teller, kind of telling jack tale after jack tale after mm-hmm. jack tale. And if you're new to the show and new to jack tales, well, jack tales are simply tales where the protagonist is Jack. <laughs> and not just named Jack, right? There are there are a whole bunch of Jack tales from both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And Jack, in all of those tales, uh, shares some characteristics, right? It's the story of the kid who's not the biggest and not the strongest and not the smartest, but through his wits and through luck kind of wins the day. And uh, you'll probably Probably recognize at least a version of this story. This story is a little bit like the Bremen Town Musicians, which is a story of which I was fond when I was a kid. There are some similarities between that story about animals and this story about animals. Jack and the Animals, told for you by Donald Davis here on The Appleseed. There were also some great stories about Jack. Would you like to hear one of them? I'll tell you one, but while I tell it, I want you to try to see the pictures in your own imagination. 
One day Jack left home to look for his fortune. Now, he didn't know that a fortune could be money or a job or even just some big adventures. Jack didn't know what a fortune was, but he was going to look for it anyway. While Jack was looking for his fortune, he passed a big barn. From behind the barn, he heard a terrible sound. Moo! Moo! (laughs) When Jack looked inside the barn, he was surprised to see a cow crying. Why are you crying, Jack asked. I'm so old that I don't have any milk left, the cow answered. Then you should come with me to seek my fortune, Jack said. And the cow came with Jack. Passing a house later on, they heard another terrible sound. When Jack looked toward the house, he saw a dog crying. Why are you crying, Jack asked. I'm so old, I can't chase robbers, the dog answered. Then you should come with us to seek our fortune, said Jack. And the dog came with Jack and the cow. Soon they heard another terrible sound. Meow! Meow! It came from high up in a tree, and when Jack looked, he saw a cat crying. Why are you crying, Jack asked the cat. I am so old, the cat answered, that I can't remember how to get down out of this tree. Then you should come with us to seek our fortune, Jack said. Jack helped the cat down from the tree, and the cat came with Jack and the cow and the dog. As Jack and his friends passed a hayfield, they heard another terrible sound. When Jack looked, he was surprised to see a donkey crying. Why are you crying, Jack asked. I am so old that I can't do any work, the donkey answered. Then you should come with us to seek our fortune, Jack said. And so the donkey came with Jack and the cow and the dog and the cat. The day was almost over. And still Jack and his friends heard another terrible sound. The sound came from right on top of the barn they were passing, and when Jack looked up, he saw a rooster crying. Why are you crying, Jack asked the rooster. I am so old that I can't tell if the sun is coming up or going down, the rooster answered. Then you should come with us to seek our fortune, Jack told the rooster. And so the rooster came with Jack and the cow and the dog and the cat and the donkey. Pretty soon, Jack began to look for a place to spend the night along with his friends. 
He knocked on the door of a little house, and when no one came to the door, Jack looked in the window. By candlelight, he could see piles of gold and sacks of money and big bags of jewels. Jack thought, wow, this must be a robber's hideout. Then he saw a huge table covered with food. Jack and his friends were just about starved, and they could see that whoever had started the meal had left in a hurry. So they decided to go inside and finish eating the food. Just as they finished eating, they heard footsteps coming up on the porch. Jack was pretty sure it was the robbers coming home. Hide, hide, Jack told the animals. He blew out the candles, and all the animals hid. The cat hid in the fireplace where the fire had been. The dog hid behind the door. The donkey hid behind a swing on the porch. The cow hid in the bushes in the yard. The rooster hid on top of the house, and Jack hid up in a tree. One of the robbers came into the house to see why the candles were blown out, while the other robbers waited in the woods. When the robber looked at the fireplace, he thought he saw coals glowing. He blew on them, hoping that the fire would blaze up, And when he did, he blew ashes right in the cat's eyes. The cat screamed and came out of the fireplace and started scratching the robber right in his face. As the robber ran out the door, the dog came out from behind it and bit him all the way across the porch. The donkey came out from behind the porch swing and kicked the robber off into the yard. The cow caught him on her horns and tossed him way out in the woods, and the rooster on top of the house crowed, Cock-a-doodle-doo! Cock-a-doodle-doo! And Jack had to hold on to the tree and try not to fall out because he was laughing so hard. The robber ran back to his friends, and they all ran far off into the woods before they stopped so he could tell them what had happened. Our house is full of monsters, he said. There was a little one in the fireplace with terrible long claws. It tried to claw my eyes out. There was a medium-sized one behind the door with long teeth. It tried to eat me alive. There was a bigger one with at least five legs that kicked me off the porch. Then a huge one with horns tossed me into the woods. I got away from the worst one of all, though, the robber said. What could be worse than that? The other robbers wanted to know. There was a screaming monster on top of the house, and it kept crying, Throw him up here, too! Throw him up here, too! I don't know what it might have done to me. We can't ever go back. 
The next day, Jack brought the sheriff to see the robber's house. And when the sheriff saw everything Jack had found, he said, Jack, you have found a fortune. So that's what a fortune is, Jack said. And for getting rid of the robbers, the sheriff gave Jack and the animals the whole fortune to keep for themselves. And my grandmother said at the end of the story, with all that fortune to use to buy food, Jack and his friends might be living there still. That's a big story about my old friend Jack. Donald Davis with the story of Jack and the animals. And like I said, when I was a kid, I learned the story of the Bremen Town Musicians, which is really essentially that same story, just without Jack, right? It's just it's just animals yeah. who thwart the robbers and wind up getting everything. So what a pleasure to hear that story. Kendra, what do you love about that story? I love especially that Jack just sets out to seek his fortune, even though he's not sure what that means. Because <laughs> I just, I feel like I can relate to that. I, I'm, I'm a college student, and before I came to college, I wasn't really sure where I was going in life or what I was doing, but I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm sure going to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And now here I am, and yeah. I know more or less where I'm going in life. I'm working here on this great program. <laughs> it's a, it's such a it, – that, that is a funny touch, right? Donald Davis points out that when we say in a story that the character went to seek his fortune, you know, we, we, we don't know if that means a, a big adventure or a lot of money or whatever, you know. But in this story, we do find uh, uh, we, we do find a, a protagonist that does get a fortune of sorts, right? <laughs> and I also love about this story that he characterizes it. He's very overt in telling you in in characterizing the story as a story that he heard from his grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it brings to mind the importance of kind of passing down some of these favorite tales, the tales that made us up uh, as children, are sometimes important for us to pass along. You know, we we assume sometimes that the people who are children now are being exposed to the same stories that we knew and loved when we were kids. And and it, it's good to be reminded sometimes that, that, it's, that that's our job. <laughs> it's our job to tell the stories. <laughs> that's right. Terrific to hear that story, not just with you, but with Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers as well. Kendra, it's great to have you with me. It's great to be here. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard a story from Donald Davis, the wonderful North Carolina storyteller who fills up stages and recordings and classrooms with wonderful tales. A lot of them are stories about his own childhood, the people with whom he grew up, the places where the things that happened to him took place. But he also tells traditional tales like that Jack tale, Jack 
and the animals. And it's always a delight to bring you a story from Donald Davis. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Judy Lubin, a story called The Fiddler and the Princess. That's coming up a little later on in the hour. Uh, But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story that you can tell around the kitchen table or the living room. Here's a memory of mine. It's a memory of a dream that I had, a dream filled with people that I had loved who had passed on. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family right when you need it, on the Appleseed. My kids used to talk about their dreams at the breakfast table. I always thought, listening to them talk about their dreams, that the stuff they read spilled into the secret parts of their brains while they were asleep. The dreams were sometimes funny and sometimes scary and always filled with a kind of adventure that was fun to talk about at the table. And my own dreams were less fantastical than theirs. I dream a lot, and my dreams are often vivid. But unless I write them down, I never remember them for more than a day or two, and they're usually not fascinating to listen to. But every once in a while, I have a dream that seems to mean something, and I remember it. I had a dream some years ago in which I walked up to an old screen door and knocked, and in a dream, the door was almost immediately answered by my grandfather, who has been dead now for more than 20 years since the century turned. He was deceased in my dream, too, and he knew it, but he wore a broad smile as he turned away from me and marched off through the little house to which the screen door belonged. He called over his shoulder for me to come in. Well, I followed him to what must have been the living room. On the couches that curved around the perimeter of the room sat my grandmother, who had preceded my grandfather in death by a couple of years. She looked as old as I ever remember her, but the deep lines of sorrow and illness that I remember were gone. In the living room, she stood and walked across the room with great ease, something that was difficult for her in real life for the twenty years or so before her death. There were other people in the room, too, uncles that I recognized, every one of them deceased and aware of it, all sitting on the sofas. The conversation that I had interrupted with my arrival now continued. They were reminiscing nostalgically about shared experiences, smiling and chuckling and sharing the look that people share when they've all been through the same similar thing. And much like you and I might talk about a long-ago football game or about prom, they were asking about the shared experience of passing from this life through death and into that undiscovered country that Hamlet described, that country from which none return. The shared experience of their own deaths is what they were discussing. There was no ceremony or ritual in the conversation. It didn't seem like they'd gathered with that in mind. It just seemed like friendly talk around glasses of lemonade on the coffee table had simply drifted in the direction of chatting about death by the time I walked in. All those folks sharing stories about their deaths in the same way that married couples around the table at a dinner party might share funny or memorable details about their weddings or their receptions or their first high school sweethearts. And that's pretty much it. That's the dream. 
And I don't know how much breakfast table story value the dream has, but I've been thinking about it for years. I saw this end of each one of those passings, the winding down of each one of those lives, the slowing to a stop of each of those bodies. On this end, there were long years of pain, moments of genuine emergency, and the dull, persistent sorrow of loss that continues even now. But if those old loved ones can reminisce together in some heavenly living room, in genial and mellow tones about their passage through that most irrevocable of calamities, what does that say about the calamity of finishing the project at work that's giving me fits, or of wrangling together cash sufficient for a mortgage payment, or of mucking out the chicken coop, or mowing the lawn. May God grant me steadiness enough in the face of life's horrors, whatever they are, to be welcomed back into that living room sometime, to lift a cold glass of lemonade from the coffee table, and to reminisce in genial and mellow tones among those whose faces are filled with gentle knowing about the things that I find most fearful here. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Are there things that you might share with those that you love who have passed on if you had a chance? questions that you might ask them about some of the things that concern or worry or even thrill and delight you here? What might that conversation be like? Well, we can only wonder, of course, but some of that wondering can make for great conversation around the dinner table or the living room. And that kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. If you have thoughts, we'd love to hear them. You can write them down. Send them to us at theappleseed.com at byu.edu. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Judy Lubin called The Fiddler and the Princess that you're not going to want to miss. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the songs that we remember, the meals that we share. And talking about some of the ways in which great stories get into our lives is something that we love to do with friends here on the show. And I'm so pleased to be joined by one of our friends, Antonio Cosha. You've heard his wonderful stories on the Appleseed before. He joins me from his home far away from the Appleseed studio. Antonio, it's so great to have you with me. I've heard a, a little bit about some of the inspirations that came into your life as you began your work as a storyteller and mime and even as an actor. Um, yes. Let's talk about one of those inspirations, shall we? Many come to mind, um, but my childhood, uh, I was uh, introduced uh, to Chaplin movies early on. Chaplin is a, is not so much now, but when I was a kid in Brazil, uh, Chaplin was extremely popular. Um, it was not uh, rare to see Chaplin movies uh, on television in Brazil, actually. I remember watching Chaplin uh, with friends on TV hmm. and then renting movies to watch. <laughs> um, he was a huge influence 
I was always magnetized for his ability to create a storyline. You know, it, it's it's interesting. Motion picture is storytelling through motion picture, yeah, right. <laughs> and you know, and um, so the visual aspect of storytelling, the body language, the nuances of the tilt of a head and and the eyes, you know, yeah. um, the, the gesture, and also the environment, you know, uh, are so keen in storytelling. You know, it's the unspoken that yeah. it. it speaks volumes when you're on stage in front of an audience. I always tell my students this, you know, uh, about how the body is there. Yeah. Even before you say once upon a time. So let's use it wisely. <laughs> let's not become an obstacle on you stage. Know, we, our audience loves so much to hear, hear what they can hear on a, in a radio performance. Absolutely. Stories, right? Yes. Yeah. We always encourage them to visit you at your website or on YouTube yeah. because so much of the wonderful performances that you give are in the, in, in what we get to see your body doing. Yeah. And that's that. Of course, is the magic that we learn from Chaplin, too, isn't it? And Absolutely. It, it, it's so fascinating to me that in the seventies and eighties, you know, kids your age were watching Charlie Chaplin films on television, decades and decades and decades after those films were made. You know, certainly they endure for those who want to go find them. But to think that they were being brought to the mainstream Brazilian audience by Brazilian television—that's really fun to think about. It is. Um, it, it was not very often, but uh, you could see Chaplin films on television in Brazil. And then, of course, with the invention of the VCR and VHS, of yeah. course, uh, then it, we would rent it. But um, his my favorite movie of all times, it's City Lights by Charlie Chaplin. Um, and it, it's the, when he falls in love with the blind flower uh, girl. You know, I have a collection of all his uh, films. And of course, there are classics, classics, you know, one after another. But City Lights really, it's it's a heart-wrenching story. Yeah. And I think one of the most amazing endings in movie making of all times. The character of Chaplin, the, 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 the tramp, uh, falls in love with a flower girl who's blind. And, and he does everything that's within his power as a street person to get her to see again. You know, he sees on the newspaper that there is a cure for her kind of blindness. And he goes to the far ends of earth yeah. to uh, find a way to find her a cure. But the beauty of it is that she mistakes him for a rich man. Hmm. And this is a very interesting thing because uh, listening to Chaplin's, how could he trick the character of the blind flower girl Fly girl. She was, she's a, a woman, yeah. um, but uh, often regarded as the flower girl. But um, anyway, she's a, a young woman selling flowers. She's blind and struggles yeah. for many days, uh, if not weeks, to figure out a way to make her think he's rich when he's actually a street person, hmm. right? He's the, the tramp. And this is a very well-known struggle in his... Uh, in, in the writing of the movie. Yeah. And, but uh, the tramp is an opportunist. Uh, he, he will take advantage of, of the moment. And, and that's another amazing thing about Chaplin is that this, this man, this character, he lives of what life presents in front of him. So he is 
crossing the street and there are all these cars in front of him. And back in the day of the story, only rich people had money to buy cars, you know, when cars first came out. He is uh, perturbed that he has to cross this wide avenue and there are cars after cars after cars in his way. Hmm. And, and so he, instead of going around the cars, he takes the opportunity to go through the cars. <laughs> so the, the tramp finding, he finds his through way by opening and doors and going through the back of cars and, and coming out. Cars. Yeah. And, and, and by doing so, he's harassing the upper class because here's this pauper, right? His, his, his uh, tramp and he's going through the rich man's car. So when he gets to the other side of the street, he slams the door and the flower woman is right there. She's selling flowers. Yeah. And, and she just grabs one and extends her hand towards him, mm -hmm. towards the sound of the door slamming. You know, sir, would you like a flower? Yeah. And he is completely taken by her beauty and charm. And he wants the flower. And it's not until later on when he goes to, to pay that he figures out she can't see him. Right. I, I, I can't watch <laughs> the end of the movie without crying. Yeah. And I've watched the movie over probably 30 times by now. What a pleasure um, to chat with you a little bit about these things. <laughs> Antonio Hosha, in a conversation that explores some of the comedy of a Charlie Chaplin film, but also some of the pathos and some of the heartbreak and some of the difficulty that you see in some of those old films. Sometimes we remember those films as simply comic romps, simply films to make us laugh. But we laugh in the midst of a lot of richness. And it's such a pleasure to chat with Antonio Kosha, the wonderful storyteller and mime, about his perspective, his insights gained watching some of those old films, watching in particular City Lights, the old Charlie Chaplin film. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. And uh, it's such a pleasure to chat with Antonio. And we'll be sure to have him back. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. Up next, you're going to hear a story called The Fiddler and the Princess, a story told for you by Judy Lubin. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you during this hour of The Appleseed. It's been a rich hour so far, you know. We started at the top of the hour with that great Donald Davis Jack tale, Jack and the Animals, about Jack and a group of critters who find themselves on an adventure that really surely none of them expected. And of course, a conversation with Antonio Hosha about the old film City Lights, that classic Charlie Chaplin film. It's fun to talk with Antonio Kosha, the wonderful storyteller, and mime about that great silent film. And of course, an entry in the Radio Family Journal, a dream about the opportunity to sit down with some of those people that I love who have passed on from this life to talk about 
whatever we like over lemonade in some celestial living room. A pleasure to bring you that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Now, up next, we've got a story for you from the storyteller Judy Lubin. Now, this is from a collection of stories called Dragons of the Sea, Legends from China. But before we get to this story, we want to remind you that uh, you can join us at byuradio.org slash service to be a part of our very first annual month of service all the way through October 16th. We'll be inviting our listeners to join with us to try to complete 10,000 acts of service, anything from taking lunch to somebody to cleaning up trash in a park to anything. Find more details at byuradio.org slash service. And now, in this tale from Judy Lubin, this is a story about a poor fiddler without a home who wanders about to make his way in the world. And one day, when he plays a mournful tune near the seaside, he finds himself called into an undersea palace to play for the dragon king. Well, what will happen when the fiddler falls in love with the resourceful dragon princess? You're going to find out in this story. Again, it's called The Fiddler and the Princess. Judy Lubin on the Appleseed. The Fiddler and the Princess Once upon a time, there was a young man named Tan Jin. He grew up in the cold, dry deserts of faraway Mongolia in his family's yurt, a big round hut made with animal skins that served as their house. When Tan Jin was no longer a boy, his father said to him, Tan Jin, my son, it is time for you to leave our yurt. Go out into the world and learn a skill. Tan Jin left the yurt, went out into the world, and learned to play the fiddle. And my, how well he played that fiddle. Whenever his bow touched the strings, everyone around stopped what they were doing to listen and enjoy. Everyone, that is, except his father. When Tanjin returned to the family's yurt, his father scoffed. The fiddle? What good is that? Fiddlers are beggars. If you expect to stay here, then you had better learn a useful skill, like how to forge iron or train horses. But Tanjin loved the fiddle, so he left to make his own way in the world. He wandered until he came to a great flowing sea. Sitting upon the rocks by the shore, he began to play his fiddle, slow and sweet. He chose a somber song that sang of the sadness and the loneliness that he felt from having left his father's home. As he played, tears streamed down his cheeks and fell onto the bowstrings. The fiddle cried with heartache when it felt those tears. But as he played, the music melted his sadness like spring melts the ice. His fiddle sang as sweetly as the April songbirds. When his songs rang of joyous summer sun, he looked up to see a woman rise out of the sea and stand in front of him. She said to Tanjin, 
sweet fiddler, who has brought such joy to my heart. I am the daughter of the dragon king of the sea. My father has sent me to bring you down to his palace so that you may play for him. She took hold of Tanjin's hands and asked him to close his eyes. Then she led him down into the depths of the sea. When they reached the bottom, Tanjin opened his eyes to find himself standing within the most remarkable crystal palace. Through the clear crystal walls, Tanjin could see the darkness of the sea. Pearls, coral, jade, and gold decorated its halls. And in the center of the palace, upon a jade throne, there was the Dragon King. Tanjin could feel the king's power and majesty resonate through the palace. The Dragon King cast his majestic gaze upon Tanjin and commanded, "Play your fiddle for me." Fill my heart with the beauty of your music. Tanjin began to play. The Dragon King closed his eyes and swayed in time to the music. All the creatures of the sea gathered at the walls of the Crystal Palace to hear the sweet, flowing music. Tanjin played until his arms could no longer hold up his fiddle. Then the Dragon King said to him. Tanjin, I could listen to your music for ten thousand years. You shall stay here the rest of your life and play for me. I will give you your own palace and a mountain of the richest jewels. Tanjin dropped his weary arms to his side and sighed. Please, Almighty、oh、Dragon King, let me go home. I want neither a mountain of jewels nor a palace. I simply want to be where I belong, on the land. The dragon king slapped his serpent's tail upon the ground and shouted, "Tanjin, you will stay here and play for me. Rest well. I wish to hear more music on the morrow." The dragon king waved to a servant who took Tanjin into a bedroom and left him there all alone, with nothing else to do. Tanjin began to play a sorrowful, lonely song. When he looked up from his playing, he saw the princess standing in front of him. She took him by the hands and said, "Sweet fiddler, do not worry. My father will be very angry with me." But I will take you back home. I cannot let you stay here against your will. When they reached the surface of the sea, Tanjin climbed out onto the rocky shore. He turned to thank the princess and saw that her hands covered her face as she tried to hold back her tears. When Tanjin asked what was the matter, she said to him, "I am happy that you are where you belong." But I cannot bear the thought that I may never hear your music again. I love it so much. Tanjin took her hands and said, "Then please stay here on the land with me and be my wife." The dragon princess happily agreed, and the two were quickly wed. They found a small village and put up their own yurt. 
Tanjin provided for himself and his wife by playing the fiddle. Yet a fiddler's life is a beggar's life, and he rarely brought home more than a few small coins at the end of the day. Ah, but his wife had a way of making those coins last, and of stretching the goods that they bought. A single bag of rice would last for months in their yurt. A bowl of butter could easily last a year. Tanjin and his wife always had enough, even on a fiddler's wage. In those days, the lands were ruled by warlords called khans, who used the old magic to keep themselves in power. One day, the khan of Tanjin's region came and set up a hunting camp near Tanjin's town. Before camp was set up, the khan saw a quail flying above him. He took up his bow, let loose an arrow, and shot that quail. But the cook tent was not yet ready, so the khan ordered a soldier to take the small bird into the village and have it cooked in one of the village yurts. And so it happened that while Tanjin was out fiddling one day, his wife received the soldier who put the khan's quail over the hearth to cook. The soldier. Taken by her rare and precious beauty, stared at the dragon princess from the moment he entered the tent. As he sat motionless and gazing at her, he began to smell <laughs> the odor <laughs> of burnt quail. He looked down and saw that the Khan's bird had burnt to a crisp, because his eyes had been watching a beautiful woman instead of the food. He cried out, "Oh, the Khan will punish me for this! How can I tell him that I have ruined his feast?" Calmly, with her kind eyes as peaceful as a lily pond, the dragon princess replied. Not to worry. We always have enough in this home. She offered one of her own quails to replace the one that was carelessly burnt. She cooked it attentively and took it off the fire when it was roasted golden brown. Bowing deeply in thanks, the soldier returned to the khan, quail in hand. The khan grabbed the quail and began to eat vigorously. But no matter how long he sat at the table, feeding himself until his belly was near to bursting, he could not finish that quail. So he gave the unfinished quail to one thousand of his soldiers, who all ate their fill. Yet they could not finish the bird. The Khan sensed a strong magic. He bellowed to the soldier. Bring me the woman who cooked this quail. When the soldier arrived to take the princess to the khan, Tanjin demanded to go instead. Before he left, his wife said to him, "The khan will demand to have me as his wife. He is lord of this area, and you will have to obey him. But he loves games. Tell him that you will play a hiding game with him, if." Two times he cannot find you in your own yurt. You win and will keep me as your wife. Add one thousand horses to the bargain, for the Khan loves 
big prizes. The Khan agreed to Tan Jin's hiding game. When Tan Jin returned home, the Dragon Princess waved her hand over Tan Jin's head and whispered a short verse. In an instant, Tan Jin became a small, very ordinary stirring stick. His wife poured some yak's milk into a bowl of ground grains, and began to stir with the stick that was Tan Jin. The Khan burst into the yurt and began to throw things about as he searched. He overturned the bed and toppled the table. All the while, the princess quietly stirred her bowl of grain. Refusing to admit defeat, the exasperated Khan stopped searching and called into the empty yurt. All right, Tanjin, now it is your turn to find me. And he ran out of the tent. Quickly, the princess changed Tanjin back into himself and said to him, "I know this Khan. He thinks that he is special." He will change himself into something out of the ordinary. Tanjin ran out into the flat, dry plains that surrounded his village. All around him, he saw flat grasslands stretching to the horizon, just as he always saw when he walked about this land. But off in the distance, he saw something that had not been there before. A large tree with limbs that reached high over the grasses up to the heavens. Tanjin walked over to the tree and said loudly, "My, what an exquisite tree! This would make a large load of firewood for my yurt. I think I will chop it down." And he took out his axe. And raised it high over his shoulder, the tree cried out, "No! Don't chop me! Don't hurt me! It is I, the Khan!" And he changed back into himself. Tanjin said to the Khan, "Now admit it! I have won the first round." The Khan replied, "It's not over yet." Quickly, Tanjin returned to his yurt, where his wife changed him into a tiny. Ordinary fly. When the Khan entered the tent, Tanjin, the tiny fly, landed on top of the Khan's fur hat, quiet and unnoticed, as the Khan searched through the house. He dumped over baskets, threw up pots and pans, spilled grain all over the floor, but he could not find Tanjin anywhere. Defeated, the Khan called out. Try to find me at the lake at sunset. If you cannot, I am the winner. And he stomped out of the tent. The princess changed her husband back into himself and said to him, "That Khan cannot stand to be like anyone else. He thinks he is so special. Look for something out of the ordinary." When sunset arrived, Tanjin went to the lake. There he saw a flock of ordinary sheep whose wool was used for ordinary everyday clothes, and in the middle of it he saw one black goat 
whose coat was so valuable that such a goat was never killed for meat, only shorn to make clothes for the wealthy. Tanjin went to that lone goat, grabbed it by the horns, and called out, "What an extraordinarily beautiful animal! I will use its hide for my next pair of boots." The goat called back, "Let me go! Don't hurt me! I am the Khan!" And he changed back into himself, standing tall. Tanjin cried out. I have won our contest. I will take my one thousand horses now. But the Khan refused. One more test, he cried. A horse race from here all the way to the edge of the plains and back. Tanjin had no choice but to agree, even though he had had enough of contests already. The Khan left a haughty laugh. And said to Tanjin, "Choose your horse well to the edge of the plains and back is three days' distance. But my horse can run that in three hours' time." Tanjin ran back to his yurt and explained everything to his wife, crying, "Where will we get a horse that can run three days' distance in three hours' time?" But his wife's calm face showed not a ripple of concern. We will go to the sea where we can think clearly. When they arrived at the rocky shore where they had first met, Tanjin took out his violin and began to play. Sweet sadness rolled off his fiddle's bow as the notes carried softly over the waves. Soon the water bubbled and foamed and. Up came the mighty head of the Dragon King. He bellowed from the depths of the sea, "Play for me, Tanjin, until the sun goes down. Then I will give you whatever you request." The music flowed from Tanjin's violin, blissfully melting into the sea like liquid gold. Rapturously, the Dragon King stilled his heart and swayed to the tune until the sun sank from the sky. Without a word, the Dragon King cast his glance upon the open sea, and up from the mighty water sprang a majestic horse, with its head stretching out in front. The horse raced over the water to the shore, but when it arrived. Tanjin could see that it had eight legs and could barely walk upon the ground without stumbling. With every awkward step, the horse nearly toppled over. Tanjin cried out in despair, but his wife comforted him. Get him to the lake for the start of the race, and then you will see the wisdom of my father's gift. Stumbling all the way, Tanjin clumsily led the horse to the lake. When the Khan galloped up on a strong black stallion, he ran circles around Tanjin and his eight-legged horse, laughing all the while. Ha! You have brought a spider, not a horse. The Khan whipped his horse and took off in a cloud of dust. 
Left in that cloud, Tan Jin mounted his pitiful horse and gave him a hopeful giddy-up. Like a bolt of lightning, the horse flew into the air and sailed above the ground. He moved so fast that his legs whirred like a hummingbird's beating wings. To the edge of the plains, the horse raced, leaving a gale-force gust of wind behind. Like a tornado, the horse spun around and raced back to the lake, crossing that vast chasm of space as if it were the mere distance of a toddler's step. Although it was hours later when the Khan returned to the lake, Tanjin had only just calmed his beating heart. But the Khan would still not admit defeat. Only when you make this lake boil and bubble will I call you the winner. Meet me here at dawn tomorrow with your wife. And off the Khan stomped. Wearily, Tanjin stumbled back to his yurt, wondering how he could survive another challenge. But the dragon princess was calm and again recommended that they go to the sea. Again, Tanjin played until the sun went down and the dragon king was soothed into a peaceful trance. At sunset, the dragon king handed Tanjin two pebbles and said to him, Listen, my son, and listen well. When you throw the white pebble into the lake, the water will boil and bubble like a kettle over a roaring fire. Place the black pebble under your tongue, and you can enter the water without harm. The next morning, with the black pebble already under his tongue, he went to the lake, where he found the Khan waiting for him, and with him... One thousand of the Khan's soldiers, each mounted upon a strong and sturdy horse. The Khan called to Tanjin, Make the lake boil and then jump in. Your one thousand horses are ready and waiting for you. If you can't do it, the soldiers are waiting for you too. Tanjin tossed the white pebble into the lake. Immediately the water began to foam and froth. Great boiling bubbles rose from the center and steam rose from the water's seething surface. Protected by the black pebble, Tanjin dove in and began to swim and play in the spirited waters. He called out, Come on, Khan, are you courageous enough to join me? Before the Khan could make excuse, one of the soldiers called back to Tanjin, of course our Khan is brave enough. Glaring at the soldier, the Khan muttered, This Tanjin won't make me into a fool. The Khan stepped one foot into the water and screamed as the water burnt his skin. He jumped back from the water and spun around, hopping in pain. Then he took off running, hobbling as fast as he could go on his injured foot, away from the lake and away from Tanjin. One of the Khan soldiers said to Tanjin, With our Khan gone, we will now serve you. But Tanjin replied, I have no need for soldiers. Go where you wish. But I will take your horses, for that was my bargain with the Khan. 
And so it was that Tan Jin and his wife earned themselves a herd of one thousand prized horses, which they shared with all the village, because one thousand is more than enough. For the rest of their days, Tan Jin and the Dragon Princess lived happily, with the sound of Tan Jin's fiddle filling their lives with love and music. The Fiddler and the Princess, a story told for you by Judy Lubin. Such a pleasure to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. You can find us online at byuradio.org/appleseed. There's an archive there filled with stories for you and your family. And of course, you can uh, visit byuradio.org/service to find out how you can participate in the last few days of our service project together with our listeners, trying to complete ten thousand acts of service. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Such a pleasure to have you with us, and I can't wait to be. With you again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family, and brought to you by the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.